and welcome to this month's Archimedes, the evidence-based podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where we talk a lot about how to put EBM in child health into practice. As you'll probably be aware, the process of evidence-based medicine starts with asking a question, often in a highly structured format of PICO, Patient Intervention Comparison and Outcome. We then take that and go away and search for the best evidence, take that evidence and appraise it, weigh up its strengths, its weaknesses, and then think about how to imply that into practice. The fifth step of the EBM process really is to then think about your performance and improve in some way. That might be thinking about has this intervention changed something in day-to-day practice and made a difference for the children and young people? Or it might be, do I know more about what uh, collinearity is in statistics? It's a continuous professional development and QI all rolled into one. Our podcast, however, doesn't do everything, but what it does do is summarise the couple of clinical cases along with their evidence and implications and gives us something to think about when it comes to EBM working. When we set ourselves that clinical question using the PICO frame or some variant of it, we mostly don't think about the scope of what we're doing. It's sort of instinctive, but like a lot of unconscious actions, it's frequently helpful to expose them to some critical thinking directly. Take a question about C-reactive protein thresholds in neonates to perform, or not, a lumbar puncture where you're worried about infection and possible meningitis. You might frame your PICO as, in neonates with suspected sepsis, that's the P bit, does a CRP threshold of greater than 20, that's the sort of I bit or the interest bit, compared with over 10, the comparison bit, diagnose as many babies with meningitis? Now, that's not an unreasonable question to ask. It's not clearly a very limited question beyond maybe you could wonder about use a different set of numbers instead or, or, or something, something like that. But what it doesn't do is explore some underlying assumptions. The assumption that diagnosing meningitis will lead you to treat it differently and that an undocumented meningeal infection will necessarily have a negative consequence or that the act of LP might affect how the child is viewed and their health fragility for the whole of their childhood and maybe beyond. These are beyond the scope of the question that's being asked. I mean, it isn't wrong to scope, ever. Well, indeed we have to. Or every single question we asked would be, when I act or not, will the universe ultimately be better or worse for the whole of eternity from now point on? But sometimes it is worth about thinking what the edges are on our box and whether we've got those edges in the right place. Now, the first of our clinical questions is one that will be raging around the place year on year on year. And it's, are multiple births at greater risk for RSV-related infection hospitalisation compared to singletons? This comes from Rafat Masali, Amira Al-Matrafi, Sarah Al-Khani, Wed Kayat and Bosco Pays at the Umm Al-Khara University at Makkah in Saudi Arabia. 
Their question arises from twins of 30 weeks gestational age being discharged from the neonatal unit and they're under regular follow-up. One of the twins required a, a bit of mild respiratory distress syndrome treatment with, uh, with some CPAP and the mum wonders because they're twins, are they at higher risk of RSV infection? The pico that arises from this are, are multiple births, the population at greater risk for RSV, hospitalisation, severe infection. The outcome compared with singletons, the control or comparison. So you've got a sort of a slightly different version of the pico there, but the same key elements within it. The group went away and they searched across PubMed, uh, Ovid Medline as a different way of getting in there, Cochrane, the web of science, even used Google Scholar to see if they could get any of the, the stuff that was hidden behind, using a variety of approaches and coming back with 466 articles that were from 1980 onward. Having a looking through this and trying to pick out the really key ones, there are 12 key studies that they identified. The numbers range from 30-odd to right the way up over 12,000 and have a variety of different techniques using cohort studies, some retrospective, some prospective, some case control stuff and some based around registries going forwards. Pulling all of them together, they all have a similar sort of feel about them and they all analyse for slightly different things. For example, the fact that multiple births are often lower gestational age and we know that lower gestational age more likely to get RSV problems. Is it the multipleness or is it the gestational age element? What about the extra things that were done to them, the supportive stuff that was done during the neonatal period? Is that the issue rather than the multipleness as such? But, but pulling all of that together, even accounting for the variation in sort of quality and possible risks within these studies it really does fall down to look like multiple births so twins triplets and higher are at increased risk of serious rsv infection the difficulty with that is that the amount of risk is is tricky to define on the basis of these studies the largest proportion of births are between that sort of 32 to 37 week gestational age and we know from this data that the ones that seem to be at even greater risk are those babies that were born at the bottom end of that, that's a late preterm, and were younger when they entered the RSV infection season. What's the implication clinically of this? Well, realistically, we should be giving really good advice to the parents of twins about trying to reduce the risk from respiratory infections, as I'm sure we do generally. And we need again to think about, does this make a difference to our immunisation criteria? Not clearly within this, more work to be done, but an interesting onwards question from this one. Our other little article comes from a very different place. And although it uses a medicine that is also about breathing and stuff like that, and wheezy bits of Monte Lucas, which used to be uh, one of the staples of asthma treatment, it's asking instead about runny noses. Chavini Ransinger and Jai Prashar from the UCL Medical School in London asked the question, is Montelukast monotherapy effective for the management of allergic rhinitis? 
They come from a four-year-old presenting at allergy clinic with severe allergic rhinitis. The antihistamine therapy hadn't really worked or hadn't been tolerated and squirting stuff up his nose was really a no-go. And so I'm wondering, is there another option? Would Montelukast therapy be effective? They went away and they looked at Medline and Embase. They searched using some broad terms and pulled up just over 400 potential articles, bringing down into a series of seven individual studies that were of use. They ranged of RCTs, randomized clinical trials, from between 18 and 208 children. And they all had slightly varied ways of looking at their outcome measures. They had slightly varied ways of including who was there and who wasn't there. So, for example, some of them excluded kids with asthma, some of them allowed kids with asthma to be part of it, and they all had slightly different things that the kids were allergic to. The largest trial, the, the 208, was based in Japan, and the kids were uh, allergic to the Japanese maple, which it seems is a really common thing um, in that area. All a little bit different, all a little bit heterogeneous. The broad finding from all of them was pretty similar to some extent, and that is that Montelukas seems to work better than nothing, but antihistamine monotherapy appears to be at least as good as Montelukast. So if you were thinking, which of these should we choose, go with the antihistamine. And there's really very weak evidence to show that Montelukast should be preferred over and above nasal corticosteroids. However, if they won't tolerate steroids, the antihistamines aren't really effective for whatever reason. It isn't an unsensible thing to do to try some Montelukast and see if that makes a difference. So there we go. Wheezes, sniffles, snotly little babies and thinking about the edges of boxes. That's this month's Archimedes and I hope that you have been inspired. You too can send in your questions. You can think about what can we learn, what can we do, what do we not know the answers to. Follow the instructions on the website and send your stuff in and maybe you too could be talking on here or perhaps just having your stuff witted about. Until next month, we'll hope you have a lovely time and enjoy work and enjoy home too.